I don't know how many decisions we make in a given day. The internet says the adult in the United States makes about 35,000 decisions. So most of those are pretty trivial. Most of those don't matter very much. But there are those decisions and there are those seasons that actually matter a great deal. What, what I feel impressed to talk about with us today are um, something I'd like to call defining moments. This is the way I'd describe it. A defining moment is where a decision you make or a direction you take will have a significant impact on your future and the future of others. So some of it is one time, yeah, it's a decision you make, or it may just be a, a series of decisions over time, a direction you take that has a significant impact on your own future, but also on the lives of others. Decisions that end up being so pivotal that they have this impact on the rest of your life. And I don't want to exaggerate like one particular time, but, but I do think we live in life, a life where there are these moments And the truth is, some of these defining moments, if you will, some of these come really not at our request. Others come because we want them to come. Perhaps it's a stage of life where it's the next logical decision, and it will launch us into uh, decisions that we have to make, directions we have to take, and it's something we actually look forward to. Other times, others have, have kind of pushed us into this, and we've weren't necessarily ready and maybe we didn't even realize it unfolding in front of us but then then it came and and now we know this is a defining or that was a defining moment in my life maybe it's the the health that you just heard described or a work condition or something else and i mention all that because numbers 13 is all about a defining moment for the people of god A moment where a decision they made and a direction they took had significant impact on their own lives, on the future, on others' lives as well. What I will say about defining moments is they don't come out of nowhere. So God, God prepares us for these defining moments. This is God's kindness. God uses lots of things in our life to make us ready for when we have to face these kinds of moments. So we're going to look at Numbers 13, but actually before that, I want us to see kind of loud and clear how God was preparing his people for a decision and a direction they were going to take in Numbers 13. You don't have to turn to all these places in scripture, but I want us to hear the backstory because if we read Numbers 13 without the backstory, we're not going to appreciate it like we should. If you go to Genesis 13, there's this passage, and it's actually kind of a a paradigm-shifting passage in Scripture. God says to Abram, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, north, south, east, and west, for all the land that you see, I will give to you. So this is a huge promise to you and your offspring. So Abraham looks and he sees all this land, and God promises this this promise will drive much of the first five books of Scripture. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Look at verse 17. Arise, Abraham, walk through the length and breadth 
of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abraham moved his tent and came and settled by the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. And notice the place, Hebron, because we'll come back to it. But God has spoken a word. God has made a promise. And promises are so different than predictions. Predictions are so impersonal. And promises are extremely personal. And God is promising something here that he will give this land. And it's actually a promise that's repeated to Abraham in his lifetime. And it's a promise reconfirmed to Abraham's son, Isaac, and Abraham's grandson, Jacob. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you this place. But yet there's times in the Bible where that promise doesn't look like it's going to be fulfilled. So you read into Exodus and God's people are not in this promised land that has been, been uh, given to Abraham. They're actually in Egypt in slavery. And, and yet God is about the business of reconfirming his promise in Exodus chapter 3. It says, the Lord says, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their suffering. And I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. In verse 17, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Parasites, Hevites, Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, despite what your circumstances look like, I'm, I'm promising you, I'm going to keep my word. I'm going to bring you to a land, and it's going to be a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey, which is just kind of a, a, a custom, customary way of saying this, is, this isn't just like the worst track of land I can find. This is a a land that's going to be ready for you. He repeats that promise in Exodus chapter 6. I established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. I mean, do you feel God just personally attaching himself to this promise? The story begins to pick up as God begins to show his power. And you can read all about the beginning of Exodus, about the plagues that he sends on Egypt. He sustained them for 400 years. Now he is moving to deliver them. And, and he does. He launches them out of Egypt in this spectacular way. And, and right as they're going out, Exodus 13 reminds them of this promise. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites... And all those other inhabitants, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service, this Passover. So this is like guaranteed, isn't it? God's not saying, you know, if we manage to work something out here for you, when this happens, when I deliver you, when you come to that land, you keep the Passover. Exodus 33, go to the land flowing with milk and honey. Leviticus 20, but I've said to you, you shall inherit the land and I will give it to you to possess a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God. I read all that because we need to hear the backstory. We need to hear what God is consistently saying. And that is, I am a God who makes promises to my people. Not like this one who runs the universe at a distance. I make promises to my people. I commit myself to those promises. And when I promise you something, I will be faithful to it. I'm not going to change my mind. 
in a hundred years, in a thousand years, in a million years. I, I, I'm faithful to my promises. You are going to come to this final stop. You are going to come to this resting place and you're not going to be enslaved and you're going to be in a land and actually my promises and my faithfulness, I'm actually generous, God is saying, when I make promises, I I promise the best for my people. I promise you to be generous. And God has the power to back all this up. I bring up this promise and wanted to show you in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and now we here are in Numbers because the, this promise has to be front and center in our mind when we read what happens in Numbers 13. So if you have your Bibles, Numbers chapter 13, I think if you picked up one of the Bibles in the back, it'll be page 83. Keep all of what I've just read in mind. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, send men to spy out the land of Canaan which I am giving to the people of Israel from each tribe of the fathers. Send a man, every one a chief among them. So Moses did this. He sent them from the wilderness of Paran according to the command of the Lord. All of them, all of these men who were heads of the people of Israel. And then there's a listing in the next several verses of these Uh, 12 representatives, two we're familiar with, and that's Joshua and Caleb. After he lists the representatives, we come to verse 17. Verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, go up into the Negev and and go to the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who who dwell in it are strong or weak and whether there's few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not, but be of good courage and bring some fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they do this. This is a defining moment here. They do this. They, they went up and they spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Libo Hamath. They went up to the Negev and, and came to Hebron. There's our, our word again. Uh, Ahimon, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskel. They cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes and they carried it on a pole. Between two of them, they brought pomegranates, grapes, and the place was called the valley of Eskel because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down. Now, verse 25, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from spying out the land. And they came to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land and they told them, they told him, we came to the land to which you sent it. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. Like if that's where the story ends, it'd be a very different defining moment. Like this is what we're prepared for, Right? This is a promise. Now live out the promise. Go take the land. It's all come together. This is the moment. This particular moment, everything's in line. You have all the promises of God. And then we read in verse 28, however, the report goes on, and this report is so much about more than just like military reconnaissance, right? At this point. However, yeah, the people who dwell in the land, they're strong. The cities are fortified and large and 
We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Malachites dwell in the land. Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites dwell in the hill country. Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. Caleb quiets the people and says to, said before Moses, let us go up at once. We can occupy it. We're well able to overcome this. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we're not able. We're not able to go up against the people that are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, the land through which we have gone to spy it out, it's, it's a land that devours its inhabitants. All the people that we saw in it, they're of great height. We saw the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. This is just such a different picture. I mean, we go to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and we're revved up for God's people to walk into the land that's been promised. And then what happens? What happens is this defining moment. As you read the Bible, this chapter in Numbers kind of tucked away in a place that we don't go to often in Scripture. This chapter, this moment, 40 years later, will be recalled at the beginning of Deuteronomy. A few centuries later, will be recalled in Psalm 78 and in Psalm 95. Many, many centuries later, Amos is going to bring up this, this chapter, this defining moment. Over a millennia later, Paul's going to write about this moment. The writer of Hebrews is going to write about this moment. Jude is going to write about this moment. This had such an impact. So, so what could go so wrong? I mean, they had all these promises from God. But th- this is what is going on in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. While God's promises have been made and they're so clear, there's been something else going on. You see, interwoven in this story, it's like a parallel track, but kind of interwoven in this story is, is in Exodus 6 such discouragement in Egypt that they're not really sure God can deliver them. And then they come to the edge of the Red Sea and they, they begin to complain and say, Moses, this is just a death wish. Who does something like this? Who brings people out of a, a, a foreign power and, and leads them to certain death? Who does stuff like this? Then you read in Exodus 16 and 18, they grumble because they, they don't see God providing food. Or more correctly, they don't see God providing food fast enough. And then you keep reading in Exodus 32 and 33, they're, they're building a, they're building a, a calf to symbolize the, the God when God had explicitly told him, don't do that. And then you read in Leviticus the story of two people who decide, I'm going to worship God however I want to. And they offer what's called strange fire to the Lord, unauthorized fire. And then you come to Numbers chapter 11 and the people are complaining. And Numbers chapter 12 and they're questioning authority. And and it reminds me of something that I saw, just trying to get a a picture of what's going on here. It reminds me of something I saw pretty regularly growing up in the southeast because you would look at, at a particular place, maybe, maybe the side of a hill, and you would see trees, and then at a certain point, you would stop seeing trees, and you would see vines covering trees. And you could tell there actually were trees there, but you couldn't see the trees because kudzu had grown all over and had spread so much that you couldn't see the trees. And I was thinking about this. The promises of God are like those, made, those huge trees that can remind us of the truth, but then there's this ugly, vile thing that grows on that. And some say that kudzu in, in the, the growing season will grow a foot a day and it spreads and it goes where you don't want it to go and it takes over and it chokes out real life. 
And that's what's happening here. The complaining, the disbelief, it's, it's caught up. And in this defining moment, they don't see God's goodness. And they don't see God's generosity. And they don't see God's faithfulness. And they don't see God's power. And they don't see God's commands for their good compares to where we live. I mean, I think this is where it goes from. This is no longer like ancient Israelite history. This is 2016 because we all will face some defining moments. And listen, you might have that at age 10 and you might have it at 100 where there is this moment in time that will significantly impact your future and impact the lives around you. And I I have such a burden about this. Because I know defining moments don't have to go the way of Numbers 13. So some of you have had these divine moments. These defining moments. And they have made all the difference in the world. Not for the havoc they caused in your life, but the fruit it's caused. The good fruit. But in those defining moments, can we just dissect a, just for a few moments what, what happened in Numbers 13? What what we can see where they got tripped up, maybe that helps us in our, our defining moment. You know, one of the first areas that I, I see where they did trip up is defining moments often exposed when God seems smaller than our circumstances. When God seems smaller than our circumstances. So this is, I mean, this is the words, right? They're looking at this land of Canaan and they're saying the cities are fortified. The people are strong. There's a ton of them. And we don't, we don't stand a chance. And yet one key component is missing. And that's God. See, defining moments, it really, really matters whether we think our circumstances are big or whether God is bigger than those circumstances. And maybe it's intentional that they don't think about God. And maybe it's incidental that in the report of the spies, they don't think about God. But whatever, the message is clear. The circumstances are so big and so tough. And you know what? They are. That's that's the issue. The circumstances are not in dispute. These are very difficult circumstances. And maybe they thought this is just going to be easy and it's proven not to be easy. But in that moment, they... They see those circumstances as huge. And God seems to be about that big and about that relevant. And maybe it's a defining moment for you. You just kind of wade into some waters here. Maybe it's a defining moment for you in a, a marriage that you had hoped to be more fulfilling than it has been. And here's the defining moment. Your circumstances say, this is just a mess and I'm tired of dealing with it. And God seems really small. Or perhaps it's the stress you feel at, at work and the boss you have to deal with, the employees, the coworkers, and it, it's not like you didn't hear the promises of God. It's not like you weren't in here. You didn't sing. You, I mean, it's not that you know, Romans 8.28 didn't register a little bit. You know, God's working all things together for good. It's just that it seems about this big and the circumstances seem huge. You're walking through a difficult relationship, difficult friendship. You're walking through financial pressure where I, I can talk all about the promises of God, but what you're feeling is, 
yeah, my finances don't work, and it just gets heavier and heavier and heavier, and these circumstances seem so big. I'm just not sure in this particular case, or it may be, you know, this, there's, there are these, this group of people, and if they really thought I meant something, and they really thought I was valuable, I, I could go to school in peace. I could, I could take my, I could just live life in freedom. But the fact is, I can't quite seem to fit in. And that seems huge. And whether God is pleased with you seems rather small. And, and this is what's exposed. And, and you may be at a place of making a defining decision. You know what? I'm going to, because this circumstance seems so big, I'm going to make compromises. I'm going to compromise my life. I'm going to compromise what I know to be true because I want this. And this seems big. And God seems small. And we make the decision. God seems smaller. But what if in that moment we actually saw God for who he is, his promises, his faithfulness? You know what what, what also begins to happen, kind of running alongside this? God seems smaller than our circumstances, and this leads us to really find that another story is compelling to us. Another story is more compelling to us. What do I mean by that? I I mean this, the original story that God is writing is this, that God works, and despite the difficulty of the obstacles, God keeps his promises and God wins. But then there's another story that it seems like, "Ah, I'm not sure that one's that compelling. I'm not sure that's going to happen in my situation. Yeah, it's fine for an ancient book, but I'm not sure in my situation it's going to work. So we begin to write another story, a story like, I don't think we're going to survive. That's what the Israelites were writing. It's actually developed on it further in the chapter, and we'll look at some of this next week. The story they're writing is, instead of God saving the day, it's, ah, we don't have any good options here. So someone made a horrendous mistake, someone didn't do their homework, or someone doesn't really care, but here we are stuck. They had formed a scenario. And often the story that we write, not the one that God's writing, but the story that we kind of prophesy in our mind, this is the way this is going to tell. It magnifies our problems and minimizes God's power. We begin to think our problems are so huge that there's, there's no way out. And God becomes less and less. And sometimes despite truth, we just don't want to hear it because another story seems more compelling. You know, we've all had a similar scenario perhaps. I think, uh, I think of the times where I've gone upstairs because, you know, so-and-so can't sleep at night. And so you go up to a girl or a boy's room and you ask them, what's the problem? And, well, there's a monster in my room. And because I'm me, I'll say something sarcastic, of course, to lead off. And then we'll turn on the lights and we'll say, well, let's look at, let's find, let's see if there is a monster. You begin to open the drawers, no, no monster in the drawers. You open the closet, no monster in the closet. Let's look under the, you look under the bed. Let's all look under the bed, nothing under the bed. There are no monsters in here. There are no monsters. And then you turn out the light and say, see, everything's better. But in that moment, that, that monster that's not there seems more compelling. And it's not so childish when it's grown up. We begin writing a story of this could go right, and then that, and then this, and then that, and then I really can't, I really can't find a way out. It's an addiction. I, I can't, I can't ever, I won't ever be set free from this, so I might as well give in. I, I can't really fight. There really isn't another way. The temptation's too strong, and apathy's too easy. 
and we give over our heart. And you know what? I'm just, I'm a fearful person and I can't fight this fear. I'm going to live. I'm just going to live in so much fear and, and terror and dread. I can't really find a way out of it. Or we begin to write, you know, the only resolution to the story is I make myself happy. So I don't care about everybody else. I'm going to make myself happy. And you know what? It'll all work out in the end. And we write our story, but it's a false story. We say, you know, Curtis, to change my life at this point, I, to really get serious about prioritizing my faith in Christ, that'd be too much. I, I can't do that. I can't make that, that many changes. And that seems so compelling. What's disturbing is that all these people knew God talk all too well. And they could talk all about God. They could talk about sacrifices. They could talk about all that. But in their, in their mind, in that moment, what was more compelling, in this defining moment, yeah, I see a different story emerging. What if we believed instead of this false story becoming compelling? What if we believed? No, maybe, maybe just maybe. Maybe our, our faith is about this small, but we say, I, I am going to believe. And my faith isn't huge. And, and maybe you say, Tom and Kelly seem like they have amazing faith. And maybe my faith isn't that huge. But, but it's not so much the, the size of faith. I think is it's who your faith is in. And so if you trust the same God that Tom and Kelly are leaning on, will he deliver? What happens furthermore when we, that other story becomes more compelling to us, we become pretty short-sighted to the consequences. I can't read their minds, but I'm guessing they did not think the long-term, long-term consequences of this decision. I'm pretty sure they did not think in that moment that scripture was going to be written about their disbelief. Yeah, I was thinking about this even this morning. I grew up in Sunday school singing like about the 12 spies of Canaan and 10 were bad and two were good. Like I'm singing a children's song. I mean, their moment, their defining moment is documented for a whole time now. And I'm not sure they realize that. And I'm not sure we always have a grasp that this moment, this decision, like you think, I'm just going to do what I want. I don't care what my parents say. You think it's just going to be a thing, and, and, yet, and yet there's consequences that come out of that. You think you can disregard wise counsel, and you know, it, it, it'll be what it'll be. But you don't see the years in the future. You think you can discount, you think you can disregard. But eventually, a semester ends and life moves on. Eventually, eventually you have to deal with the decision you made. And eventually we'll meet the Lord. And eventually everything that we, every choice we've made has an impact. We become short-sighted to the consequences. In light of these defining moments that, that's like serious business. Because this is what I know is at stake. Someone could walk out that door and make a decision or take a direction that you could just hurt you could hurt a ton of people. So what does this make me do? It makes me think we need, in light of these defining moments, we need to live in humility. If this doesn't humble you, I, I really don't know what might humble you. The fact that in the next three months, you might make a decision that has bigger consequences than you ever realized. And maybe you've lived a long time without thinking about God that much. 
that in this moment, God's going to need to be more to you than just a religious affiliation. He's going to need to be more. What I love is Paul describes how this colossal mistake that they make in 1 Corinthians 10, but then he says, then he says, but no temptation has overtaken you, that which is common to all of us. And God is faithful. He will make a way of escape. There's a way of escape. Live in humility, knowing you need God. Live in humility, but also live with hope. What I realize is I I start talking about defining moments, and maybe you kind of are going back to places in your life and realizing that was a defining moment, and it cost me big time. You don't have to tell me about consequences, Curtis. I've lived them out for 10, 20, 30 years. You don't have to tell me how life affects others. I, I know. And maybe almost all of this whole time spend just like cutting you deeply. And for you, I'd say there's still hope. Because this is what I know. Although we, although we may totally mess up a defining moment, I'm hoping you don't. I'm hoping you choose wisely. But although we have, may have messed up, it's, it's not too late to turn back to God. Say, well, how can you say that? I don't believe you would be hearing from God in this moment if it were too late. I don't think you'd care. But you are hearing from him. And what the Lord promises is there are new mercies every morning. You don't have to continue on a path just because it seems like, well, that's just, that's just the way it is. God promises to redeem and restore and forgive and make new. And this room is filled with lots of people who had defining moments that we messed up. And God's been faithful. It doesn't mean we don't live with consequences. It doesn't mean we, we don't live with regrets. You know why we can actually even move on defining moments that we got wrong? Because there was a defining moment in the life of Jesus Christ where he could have said, I don't really care to go to the cross. I mean, he lived the life we should have lived, but we haven't, and we can't. But he decides to go to the cross. Decides to take your sin and my sin, our failures, our rebellion. He takes our sin and our shame. We receive his righteousness, his forgiveness. We go free because of his death. And then scripture records that Jesus rose from the dead to give life. And by the way, that same life is offered to you today. And it's new life. It's new life. There are defining moments. And you might be in one and you might be like on the brink of one and you don't even know it. In these moments, can we live both with humility? God, help me. God, help me. Help. And live with hope. Lord, I, I need forgiveness. I need I need mercy because I I don't want my mistake to be final. I believe God will pour out his grace on us. Can we take a moment and just ask him for help? Remind ourselves of the hope. Our Father, thank you that even in these times, uh, tough times, where... Where we're unclear about the future, but we know we have decisions we're making and attitudes we're having and whether we're going to really trust you or not. And 
Lord, I, I know, friends in the congregation, where this is a defining moment, and I know there are, are students who are making decisions that are going to define a lot of their future. Oh, Lord, we need your help. Give us hope today and humble our hearts. We are, we feel pretty small in light of all this. So make us the people that look more and more like Jesus Christ. And I pray that there will be good fruit from defining moments that happen in 2016. Lord, write some great stories because of the directions we take and the decisions we make. In Christ's name we pray, amen.